You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Daniel Solove, who is a professor of law at George Washington University. And in addition to being, I think, the leading authority on privacy law, he is the author of quite a few books. Of course, there is the textbook, which I don't know, this must be in the fifth or sixth, the fourth edition is the one I have. I don't know what edition you're in on information in privacy law. Also the author of, if you want to get a little bit more of a succinct understanding, check out this one. It's called Understanding Privacy. But you also got a bunch of books, The Digital Person, Nothing to Hide, The False Trade-Off Between Privacy and Security, The Future of Reputation. Gosh, I think this came out in 2007, but it's still super fresh. Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet. And then most recently, you co-authored this book called Breached, Why Data Security Law Fails and How to Improve It. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what I really liked about this latest book, Breached, is that you talk about data security and data security law. There's also data security policy that companies exercise. And you know whether we're talking about the law or talking about the policy, it seems to fall between two stools, right? So you know, data privacy is something that we normally think of as a legal issue, a compliance issue, and it's managed within the firm by those departments. Whereas cybersecurity is something that we typically think of as a technical issue, right? Something that is kind of in charge of IT. And I guess you're arguing that not only is there a lack of coordination within companies, but there's also kind of a, a lack of coherent thinking at the legal level on, you know, what exactly it is that we're trying to achieve and what is the best way to achieve this through the law. I guess the question is, why is this field so fragmented? And why do you even need to write a book to try to stitch back together these things? Is it primarily a conceptual problem or is it an institutional problem? Well, I think it's both because we have you know the kind of internal structures to address cybersecurity in companies and organizations. We have the kind of external reaction uh, by policymakers, which is to pass laws and regulations on this, which do drive what the internal things are being done. The problem, I think, is that of the way it really goes down to a conceptual problem and approach. Long before the spate of data breaches, let's roll back the clock to 2000 or the 1990s. At that point in time, the term data breach wasn't really even in use. I wrote my first book, The Digital Person, talking about the reported cases of breaches, which weren't called breaches. And there were like a few, like one or two. Is that primarily because of the lack of connectivity, right? The fact that these data was being kind of stored in servers that were not easily accessible through the internet? Both. One is, yeah, they were, but even in the early day, you know, by 2004, there were, you know, the internet was getting on a roll, but it was that they had no obligation to report. So it was all just mm -hmm. internal, and, and it was the law that pushed that. And the law generally, when you looked at the law of security, a lot of that law were requirements in privacy laws because security was one of the original fair information practice principles. And so security was sort of used to be understood as part of privacy. 
Then the data breach epidemic started, though I think it really was going on before 2005. But in 2005, what we started to see is reported breaches. And that was because the choice point breach got reported. A 2003 law in California required breach notification, the first breach notification law. And then after that, we saw all these uh, reports of data breaches, which wouldn't have happened had that law not been in place. And then when other states saw, you know, why are only the Californians getting notified and not our citizens because we didn't pass a law. So they all jumped on the bandwagon. Now all 50 states have breach notification and it's spread around the world. The GDPR has a breach notification requirement. So this created a lot of transparency to breaches. It also shed a lot of light on the problem of the lack of security of data. This problem was already in existence. I wrote about it in my book. I said the data wasn't very secure. There's nothing really you know, keeping it secure, and the laws were really weak. But it really kind of took the spotlight of all these breach notifications and all these headlines and the news of so many breaches, this parade, to really bring attention to it. And as a result, you know, more states passed breach notification laws and other laws. There were lawsuits. And so you started to see a big legal response, as well as an institutional response focused on cybersecurity. That started to create this little bit of a silo, because a lot of those responses weren't as focused on the privacy side. They were more on the security side. And I think that's a bit unfortunate. I also think that another problem with it is that it became obsessed with the breach. And so the law kicks in after the breach, and then there are notifications. The lawsuits will start arising after the breach. And then various agencies were exercising their enforcement authority to enforce against breaches. The FTC and the FCC would bring cases for companies that had breaches. Problem is that there's way too much, this is the conceptual problem, way too much focus on data breaches. And the problem is that the breach is really the last chapter of a very long novel, and the causes of a breach occur long before the final chapter. And the law's reaction, which is typically to pummel the company that had the breach, and it's easy to, they deserve a spanking because if you look at them, they're almost always flawed. Their security is weak, they're not investing enough in it, or they are investing a lot, but they've made some really bad blunders. You can always find some really bad mistakes. So it's easy to flog them and say they did something wrong. But what we argue in the book is that you're not going to get that much more mileage out of that. Ultimately, that approach is a reactionary approach. You are sort of increasing their costs marginally but they already have a lot of costs when they have a breach. You can get them to improve, but there's just so much mileage you're going to get from that. And that a lot of the causes of a breach are completely unaccountable in the law right now and are really wreaking havoc and creating this terrible situation. And because the spotlight isn't on them, they get a free pass and they continue to make the situation a heck of a lot worse. So the law, unfortunately, has focused way too obsessively on breach and failed to focus on things that could actually address this problem in a much more effective way. 
Right. Now, presumably companies have an incentive to invest in data security solely because they have proprietary information, right? So uh, I used to do some work in competitive intelligence, and a big part of that was essentially trying to reverse engineer trade secrets of other organizations. And of course, you know, those companies do everything in their power to prevent (laughs) their competitors from doing this. So I think that investment is probably going to take place at the optimal level to some degree. The stuff that you're concerned about are the kinds of deficiencies in one's data security that have a potential externality, right? A potential negative impact on others, right? And it's not going to necessarily flow back to the company. But I guess the question is, why doesn't tort law do the job? Why do we need regulation? Why wouldn't tort law provide a remedy or contract law, right? So presumably when one shares one's data, right? One does so with some implied terms and conditions. Why are those bodies of law failing to lead to the proper internalization by these companies? Well, a couple problems. I think tort law could do a lot more if there were a broader imagination for tort law. And one project I'm working on is, you know, what if we were more imaginative in the uses of tort law, because I find a really bad lack of imagination in tort. There's so much left on the table, so many possibilities for what the common law could do when it comes to this that are not being brought. One is, you know, the lawyers often don't have that much imagination. They just cut and paste what the other lawsuits are, and then you just go and get a settlement. So they're not really interested in taking a lot of time to do some deep, creative thinking and develop the law in really interesting ways. It's just like, let's just bring a case and settle and get paid off to go away. Courts are very myopic in their understanding of privacy as well as the law. And I'm stunned sometimes when I read the opinions that, you know, when a judge will say something like, we don't recognize damages for pure emotional distress harms. There's 150 years of privacy torts cases, thousands of cases that do just that. So much so that it's not even an issue that's even litigated in those cases. No one even brings the argument. And yet, you know, I see in so many data breach cases, these statements supported only by recent opinions, and you go there and they don't really cite to the actual cases. They just cite to other judges making the bald statements. I mean, it's pathetic. And, you know, if they were in my class, they'd flunk because you can't just omit thousands of cases and 150 years of law, but that's what we see. And courts just have a very, I think, unfortunate understandings of privacy. They require conceptions of harm that are really hard to establish. So it's really hard to do anything with tort law until there's a breach because courts are very reluctant to find a harm unless there is a breach. And so we need a little bit of more fulsome imaginative thinking in the law to make it work. But I think the seeds are in tort law. There is precedent. The concepts are there that a bright, thoughtful judge, like a Judge Brandeis or a Judge Cardozo, would easily be able to do some pretty magical things. Unfortunately, until that kind of a judge comes along, we deal with very narrow-minded opinions that constrict doctrine and constrict the evolution of the law. So it doesn't really Mm -hmm. 
keep pace with technology or address these problems. And that's really what I think we're seeing. Law is only as good as the judges that are applying it. Now, I'm heartened that, you know, there's a little bit of improvement here. I think data breach litigation has improved a bit, but still also we have the cases that are brought by, you know, class actions are a blessing and a curse. They're good because they do get cases into the courts and they get litigated and it's a mechanism to enforce it. So I like them. On the other hand, the lawyers, their incentives are to settle and make a quick buck. So that's a problem. So tort has possibilities. I just think there's also these limitations to it that are holding it back. Well, there's a spectrum of potential harm, right? So on one end, there are the pure emotional harms caused by an invasion of one's privacy, right? So imagining that there's someone out there looking at one's naked pictures, right? You know, then there's harm that's more obvious where that sort of thing could lead to a damage to your reputation and so forth. But then at the other extreme, there's just pure financial harm, right? Where people will come in and steal your identity, right? And so it seems you point out that if, unless you can demonstrate there's sort of some causation you have a difficult time getting standing. Standing and harm is going to be hard. We also need to think about holding other actors responsible beyond the organization that had a breach. These other actors play a role. Developers of software that have bugs that could create insecurity get a pass. They create all sorts of problems and they rarely are sued for what they're making. If I make a car that could blow up on you, you know, if I make a blanket that's flammable, I'm responsible. I make a piece of software that can be easily hackable, tough luck. That's the way the law is functioning. So it's not holding all the actors responsible who cause these problems. And you go on Amazon and you look for security cameras or baby cameras, most of these devices are woefully insecure. They're built with no security at all or built-in passwords that are default passwords that are easily guessable. Not only do the cameras cause security problems for their buyers, but they also cause security problems for everybody because they could be used in a botnet attack commandeered by hackers to attack others. So they actually affect society and make everybody insecure. But people can't figure out, you know, how is the average person supposed to know what cameras more secure than not beyond statements that, oh yeah, we they're secure, but that's not meaningful. It's kind of the Wild West to some extent, or buyer beware. So people can figure out price and they can understand differences in price. They can understand differences in functionality. I don't think they really can know enough to choose on security. Just like I don't know enough when I go to the supermarket what food is safe or not. That's just a thing I can't figure out. And I don't have time or expertise to do that. It's nice to know, like if I buy something in the supermarket, it's basically safe. I go and buy a car, it's going to have basic safety. I go and buy a piece of software and it could kill me. That's sort of the problem. It's totally unsafe. And I think we need to treat this more like we treat other products. There's a bit of exceptionalism when it comes to technology, where we accept risks and dangers with technology and don't hold the makers of it accountable in the ways we would never do with any other product. 
Yeah, I mean, why is that? I mean, I used to teach law and economics for many years, and we had the the least cost avoider principle, right? And and we would talk about that in the context of product liability. And I remember one of the cases that we would talk about was, you know, someone bought some bottles of Coca-Cola or something that exploded, right? Because there was too much pressure and the, the lid wasn't attached properly. And this resulted in, in a judgment, right? Because there's no way that the buyer can, you know, inspect the, yeah. <laughs> the bottle and figure out whether the cap is adequate and whether the pressure. And you could imagine that Coke could require every buyer to waive their right to sue. And, and I think the court would just invalidate that because that would be a, a contract of adhesion. Nobody would know what the heck they were signing. But, you know, we see that all the time in the world of software. Now, is this just a software versus hardware thing? Because then that would mean it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Or have we treated information differently? I mean, look, if I bought a ring camera and it electrocuted me, I would have a clear lawsuit. But if somebody hacks in and sees when I'm out of town and then they rob my house, like, or then kill me, right? I don't have a lawsuit against Amazon. Have we always sort of treated tangible products differently than I guess we might think of as intangible products? I mean, if I leave money with you and and it gets stolen, you're liable. But if I leave my some information with you and it gets stolen, it seems that I'm less liable. Why does the common law treat this differently? Yeah, we have exceptionalism here. I mean, definitely it's different. Now, it wasn't always that way for physical things. I mean, it used to be a day and age when, you know, the cars would be terribly unsafe. And we have Ralph Nader crusading before he became an election spoiler. He was a crusader for automobile safety and he pushed and others pushed for better, safer autos. And now we have airbags and seatbelts and much better auto safety. But that was not, that didn't lead to a change in tort remedies as much as it led to a change in the Regulatory infrastructure? Yeah, regulatory right? infrastructure kicked in. But just even historically, there were, even when there were remedies out there, sometimes they just were not utilized that effectively. And I think part of it is that the sort of the lack of imagination on the courts and on litigators. Yeah, so I think there's a tort could jump in and the concepts are all there. It needs the right people to argue it and to decide it to get it to kick in. And I think if it does kick in, it could do a lot of good. But you look historically at different things, and I've, I've read you know, about regulation of different products, and it's interesting how it takes a long time for courts to kind of wake up to the problem. I'm one who thinks that the best solution is a kind of multitude of regulators getting involved, a multitude of bodies of law. So I'm all in favor. I, I don't think, you know, like one law, one agency to rule them all is the best solution. I think that you need overlapping and to some extent redundant bodies of regulation, tort, private rights of action, regulators, different agencies, all on the uh, march for addressing something effectively which it sort of cuts against what a lot of people push or want. Like we want one gigantic federal law and we want that only. I actually think that's less effective than having, I'm happy to have the one law in addition to everything else, but not in lieu of everything else. I think having all these different laws, having the courts, having private rights of action, having different states get involved, all is, is helpful. It has to be a bit messy to make it work in the law. Yeah, I mean, some people who look at our, financial regulation would say, you know, this is a big mess, right? But others would point to it as, as a strength and say that the multiple overlapping agencies do a better job of providing some kind of 
macro prudential checks and balances. So, I mean, is that the idea? So rather than creating sort of a federal privacy agency or federal data protection agency, we could kind of leverage things like the FTC and other kinds of bodies? Yeah, I mean, we already do. I think it doesn't get enough credit for what the FTC has done. I I wrote an article about 10 years ago about how the FTC has created this body of law. It's a bunch of settlements, but it still signals to companies and has an effective law, kind of effectively like a common law of privacy. And they've done a lot of things through their enforcement of a rather broad and vague law, Section 5 of the FTC Act, which prohibits unfair and deceptive acts or practices. Now, that's a very broad, they're almost like a constitutional bill of rights provision. And they've interpreted that to apply to all sorts of problematic privacy and security practices, which is great. And over the years, over about 20 something years, have developed quite a robust set of complaints and consent decrees that have had a tremendous influence. So we have this body of de facto common law. I think that's just one thing. I think it's not the only thing. I'm you know, in favor of the FTC. I think that having a federal law would be a great thing to add to this mix. I'd like to see more, but I wouldn't want to see, okay, let's just create a new agency, wipe out the FTC out of this, create some law that will preempt all the other laws out there. And then what will happen is that agency might very well get captured or the an administration that decides that it doesn't really care about privacy or is beholden to some company or industry might weaken the agency with weak appointments. And then the law will sit around and Congress is awful about keeping its laws up to date. I don't want Congress to keep anything up to date because they do a very bad job. FERPA's the, the law regulating education records is more than 50 years old. You know, the law regulating HIPAA is pretty old too, I think. Yeah, HIPAA, but they did update that. You know, HIPAA was into, you know, kind of started coming into effect in 2003. It was the final rule was in 2000, but they updated it with the High Tech Act in 2008. By and large, I mean, the, the other thing is it's sort of a rule. So the law says very little and the rulemaking is what delegated to the agency. ECPA is another example. There's a law, Congress passed it in 1986. It regulates electronic surveillance. It's passed long before the internet as we know it, before email as we currently use it, and courts really struggle applying this law 40 years later. Desperately needs an update. There's always talk about updating it. Congress can't get the job done. But this time, I I wouldn't even trust Congress to change a light bulb in my house. I don't think they're able to do it. They would scream and shout and rant at the light bulb and, you know, whatever, and demand like, let's go into default in exchange for changing the light bulb. They can't do anything. And so I don't think I would want, if we got a federal law, that law is going to be outdated very, very quickly. And then we're locked in and there's preempts everything. Then there's going to be really hard for anyone to address problems anymore. That's going to be a difficult problem. And I think about this because there was talk about a comprehensive federal privacy law around 2000. In the early 2000s, that idea was debated. Industry at that point didn't want it. They were vehemently opposed. No, it's terrible. The internet will die and we need freedom from the government. The internet's a government-free zone and we can regulate ourselves. Self-regulation. Trust us. We'll be good. Don't 
do you dare pass a law? And so no law happened. What that law would have looked like had it passed is a lot weaker than any proposal out there now. If that law had passed then, there'd be no deletion rights, no sensitive data, no almost all the things that we see in privacy laws today would probably not have been there had they pushed for the law then. So what is privacy law going to look like 20 years from now, 2040? I would think, and actually I would hope it would look very different because I still think that although privacy law is better today than it was 20 years ago, I still think it's got some growing up to do. Now, you use the example of restaurant regulation, right? Where you don't wait until there's um, E. coli breakout at a restaurant, right? You know, you kind of go in there and do inspections. I mean, would it make sense to have some kind of regime like that? I mean, I know the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency does stress tests for banks. And, you know, there's a lot of critiques of the specifics of those stress tests. But the idea is to go in and do some examinations and, you know, make sure that they're adhering to certain principles and procedures, right? And this operational risk and interest rate risk and default risk and all these things are looked at. If we were to do something like that, I mean, it seems like every single company on the planet would have to subject themselves to this. I mean, could it be like when you get your audit, right? As a publicly traded company, you have to get an audit. I mean, this would presumably apply to public and private companies. Yeah. I mean, small companies and large companies. I mean, you could have certain, you could have a regime where, you know, certain types of companies should always be audited. A credit reporting agency, companies like Facebook, you know, companies that have a massive amount of data and could be the riskiest of companies where there's something at stake. And then for everybody else, you could have kind of more of a random audit situation. The audits could be conducted by a third party. You could also require that companies get an audit at at various times. Or insurance. You could require sort of security insurance, and then the insurance providers would then be incentivized to do the inspection, right? Yeah. And that's increasingly happening, although the insurance has its own pathologies. They will drive up security because they want to protect their risk. Their incentive is they want to sell lots of policies, charge a fortune for them, and then they don't want to pay out. So that's their incentive. So there's a little bit of a conflict. If you make it too hard to be able to get a policy or to hold a policy, people are going to say, I don't want it. What good is a policy if you demand too much to sell it? So they're going to want people to sign up and then they're going to want ways then to find. So it can drive it, but there is this tension between selling the insurance versus having rigorous requirements for security. But even then, we're just talking about the companies that suffer the breaches. But what about all these actors? The software people are just software manufacturers, just one actor. There's other types of actors that contribute to the problem. So in particular, one big problem is what I call the miseducators. These are companies that will undermine good security education. So we spend a lot of time, and I I take this seriously because I have a training company and I provide training on how do you avoid phishing. And it's very important that people know, don't click links. A legitimate company won't you know, ask you for your password in an email and all this stuff. And then what you see is the company's doing that. And legitimate companies will do these things. They are undermining all the education, everything I've taught 
is undermined when I, I just said they won't do it and they do it. Then the people say, oh, okay, well, they, we will do it. It's, it's easier to fall for things. That, that's why. And then they laugh at people who fail. Well, the reason why people fail is because they are doing these things. And the fraudsters know they, they can do things that look like what legitimate companies do. And the other thing that's kind of weird that we have right now in our system is that you know, if I go to a company, they will authenticate my identity. So we have great ways to authenticate my identity, right? I have a username and password. I have to two-factor authentication. But when I go to them, how do I know that they're them? They email me, but they don't authenticate themselves. They want me to click on this and that to go to their site. They don't authenticate themselves. So what we have is really a unilateral authentication where I, you know, people authenticate themselves to the companies, but the companies don't authenticate themselves to the people. So the hackers know, oh, it's really easy. We can just trick people by pretending to be the companies and there's no authentication that they have to do to people. And that's how they get away with a lot of their hacking. If we had companies devise ways that they authenticated themselves to people, then we would be, I think, a lot safer and fewer people would be falling for the hacker tricks. And if the company is doing some practice that is miseducating, I think it should be penalized. And so the, the companies after a data breach would send these emails telling people like, click on this to put your information in to gather that. And their email looked like a hacker email. Like if I were the regulator, I would say, I'm punishing you. You are making security worse for everybody. You're teaching people the wrong thing. You are a menace. You're a nuisance, essentially, is what you're doing. You're messing everything up and you're making it worse for everybody else by teaching people the wrong things. And you should be penalized. You shouldn't be doing this. But I don't know how many times I'll get emails from legitimate companies that are, I just like, are you serious? Like this looks like a hacker email. Why are you sending this? And, and they should be called out for it as terrible security. They're making this problem a lot worse. Yeah. And I think that's why you said it's really a public goods problem to some extent. But, you know, the thing I found most interesting in the book Breached is it's kind of like you're advocating this new field, which we might think of as behavioral data security, right? Because you really think seriously about real humans. Okay. Now, look, a lot of engineers have to be educated about what real humans are like, right? And we have courses like human factors and so forth. But it seems like some of the IT people, they are designing data security for robots and not for people. And if you understand people, then you also understand that they desire convenience and they don't have infinite memories. They just want to go in and get things done. And so if you think carefully about that, then you realize that, first of all, there's no, the ideal amount of security is not infinity, right? That there's a trade-off there and the IT people need to understand that trade-off, but then they also need to come up with techniques that basically accept human frailty. So passwords is a great example. And <laughs> you have a whole section on there on passwords. I mean, I've gotten these things, you know, change your password every, and you lose track of them all. And it's either super frustrating or you're leaving yourself super vulnerable. Why is it that IT people fail to understand what real humans are like. Because there isn't, oftentimes they're not really good alternatives. And the regulation kind of makes it so that if they don't do certain things, then they're penalized. So a lot of times they'll just do it because everyone else does it. And they're kind of looking to, well, if we don't do it, what would the regulators think? They're going to ding us on this. 
And so it starts with the regulators that the law needs to say, you don't get extra credit for doing certain things like this. In fact, Mm -hmm. it's bad. So the practice of you know making people change their passwords is bad. And I think the expert advice now in the security community is this is not good security. Now, there are still folks that are still doing the old approach, making change of passwords. There's actually a lot of government sites that make me change my password all the time. I think it's bad. I think that that practice should be stopped, but there's no regulatory driver for that. And in fact, a lot will just say, hey, you know, we're, we're doing it, they think, because it's going to help them look better to a regulator or a court in the event of a breach. So we have to address that at that level to say, actually, you know, doing these things is bad, not good. I think it's also, it's very mechanical in that the law typically looks to, you know, okay, did you require these really complex passwords? And it's sort of easy. Yeah, we did. We required a really complex password. So haha, you know, we, we were good. They don't consider the human element, which is, you know, people won't remember that many large and complex passwords. And so it doesn't work. It doesn't scale. It's beyond human cognition. But when the regulator looks at it, they're going to, you know, if you didn't do that, they're not going to reward you. Oh, you allowed a simple password. They mock a simple password. So there's a tension there because I do think that everybody knows that it doesn't work. They know that people can't remember these things, and but they don't have another script to follow or another game plan to address the problem. So it falls back to these typical things, which is just require these really lengthy passwords. And and unfortunately, some of the advice given is bad, like, you know, don't write down your passwords. It's the worst advice I've ever heard. Of course, you have to write down your passwords. Just don't stick them on a sticky note to your computer. Don't put them <laughs> in your wallet. But yeah, you're going to have to write it down. There's no way you're going to remember it otherwise. The password recovery becomes the way that a lot of the hackers will break in, or even with a good password, they can trick people into telling them their passwords. The security does need to think about the human element, and that's a different kind of thinking than what might be the best for security. And that's what makes security so tricky, is that there are good technologies and weaker technologies for security. I think two-factor authentication is good. I think there are a lot of things that IT people can do that will make very effective security. But there's also this human dimension, and that's a dimension that a lot of them are not trained on. They're not experts in human psychology and in human cognitive abilities and what humans are likely or unlikely to do. But we need that expertise involved if we're going to create the kind of right security framework for a company. And the other thing that makes it tricky is it's laden with policy because it's never keep something 100% secure. So you want 100% security, well then, you know, don't use the internet and don't have data and no one gets access. That's 100% secure, but that's not feasible. There's always going to be a trade-off. So someone's working at a bank or at a nuclear facility there's a lot more top-down control over you know, what someone can be surfing online on their own. And if they put on their computer software, there should be a lot more you know, looking over people's shoulder to make sure they're not you know, installing dangerous stuff on their machines. Now, contrast that with the environment I work in, a university. There, we have a value of academic freedom. And so if the school is going to monitor every little thing that every professor does on their computer, that starts to undermine the very atmosphere we want to foster in a university and the sense of freedom that we want to foster. 
But notice that doesn't fly at a nuclear facility. Wouldn't say, well, academic freedom, like I'm going to install all sorts of games and everything else into my computer and I'm free to do that. Whereas in academia, we would say, of course, you should be free to do that. And we'll take on a security risk because we value that freedom. It's really what is the nature of the organization and then what's the right balance of security for the values we want to promote and the risks. There aren't like absolute clear right and wrong answers to this. This takes a lot of thought and it's a policy issue. But I think that, you know, we need to train security folks to think about these things. Now, there are folks out there in security that do think about them. They're very policy minded. They have a background and they understand humans. They're great experts. But then there are those who aren't. So an example of a great one is an expert like Bruce Schneier, who's written many, many security books. He has a great understanding of human nature. He's a great understanding of policy. He kind of see, and it's great understanding of technology. He kind of has it all. Fantastic. But a lot just don't have that broad of a background. And so we need help there and we need to get that information either to those professionals or find people to help them think through these issues. Unfortunately, the law typically wants just kind of bright line, checklisty type of things, which really does not work well and incentivize the kind of thinking that I think needs to take place. Yeah. There's a great story in the book about this guy who had some encrypted medical data on a USB and he lost it. Luckily it was encrypted. Unluckily he had the uh, decryption code on a post-it note attached to the, to the drive, right? It sort of defeats the purpose. But, you know, that, that reminded me a lot of what you see in the kind of crypto world, right? And I think what you see happening in the crypto world is it sort of reinforces this idea that people's stated preferences and their revealed preferences seem to be in conflict, right? And you talk a lot about this in your privacy writing, right? Every single person that you meet says, oh, I value my privacy. But it seems like anybody will just fork over their DNA information for a free slice of pizza, right? So, I mean, should we be designing the law to protect people's stated preferences? Or should we kind of look to their revealed preferences when we're trying to figure out what the magnitude of the cost? I mean, if we're designing policy as sort of a cost minimization exercise, right, which is what a lot of kind of law and economics people would say, what cost should we use when we think about the impact of, of privacy loss? Well, to some extent, I would say neither, because I think that neither stated preferences nor the behaviors is really an accurate reflection of much of anything. You know, a stated preference for privacy, I value privacy, could mean a lot of different things. It could mean I value my own privacy, but what does it mean to value my own privacy? It can mean many different things. It can mean my privacy vis-a-vis the government. It can mean that I want to protect against certain kind of disclosures, but not other disclosures. It can mean that I want some kinds of control, but not. It can mean that, hey, I just want to be able to surf the internet and feel safe. It can mean so many different things. But uh, you know, when I just say, hey, I, I value my privacy, I think, or I, and it could also mean that I value privacy as a social value. And I think that maybe I don't care as much about my privacy. I'm on Twitter. I have a website. I speak in the public. I'm being you know, recorded right now by you, and it's going to go up on the public. So, But there could be other people who are much more private than I am. And so I might value their right to make that decision for themselves, even if I don't choose to make it for me personally. There's a value in just like I value free speech. 
I might not like what you say, but I value your right to say it. So there's that. When it comes to behaviors, they are measuring you know, what people do in a particular situation. So if you said, hey, will you tell me a private fact offline and I'll give you, you know, $100 and I might say, well, you seem safe to me. I trust you. What are you going to do with it? You know, okay. I might feel differently if it's some anonymous calls me up on the phone and says that. I'd be like, okay, I don't trust you. So it depends on the situation. It also depends on my knowledge of what could possibly happen. And the other thing too is, you know, people act impulsively. People have very contradictory things. People make decisions all the time that undermine themselves. And we have to balance that because you can get people, I can get you to sign away your firstborn too. I can can give you a contract, bury it in the terms, and most people would sign it away. So there's always a way and there's always problems when we're trying to measure like what people are doing because people's behavior, people don't really understand the risks. People don't really think it through in the particular situation. So I'm not sure that measures much of anything important either, because you can always get people to do anything. You can say, hey, you know, you wrestle with a lion for a hundred dollars and there are people who will do it. And the other problem is privacy is very abstract and the risks are in the future and they're very hard to know, okay, what will happen. But the benefits of technology are immediate. And same thing with security. You know, the benefit, security, you know, something could happen, who knows when and whether. But someone says, oh, we're going to offer this really cheap. And you get this really cool camera, this really cool technology. Yeah, I really want that cool thing. I want the benefit. Yeah, there's a risk, but will it really happen to me? Probably not. Yeah, maybe. And what could be done? I don't really know. Could it really be that bad? Uh, It's hard for me to know. It's all abstract. Why not? The price, the cool overwhelms the choice that people might make. So we have to protect against that because that's the problem. It's not going to lead to a good set of consumer choices. Consumers are going to struggle to really be fully informed of the implications. And then there's a social aspect. I buy a bad security camera and it's not used. It doesn't affect me, but it could be used in a bot attack against somebody else. The market isn't taking into effect the cost to somebody else for my choice to buy the cheap, bad security camera. And I think we need to address that as well. Now, look, I mean, you could imagine a very complex system of property rights around personal information with complex contracts that have contingencies and permissions and so forth. But even if you could do that, I think your argument is that that would not be a perfect solution. I think it was in your your Notre Dame Law Review article recently where you said that just thinking about privacy from an entirely rights-oriented perspective is is inadequate. Why is it that we tend to think in terms of privacy rights, right? Is this just sort of the default way of thinking about things in the Anglo-American legal system? Is that just what we gravitate towards? or And what would be the alternative way to, to think about it? I think it's a very common way of thinking about things. And I think that rights, there's an alert to it. Because I think early on, there's a long tradition in privacy that all this information and all these algorithms used to make decisions about people, that people's lives are increasing out of their control. The computers are being used to decide things about your life and collect data about you, and you're out of control. And that's a legitimate fear and a legitimate concern. That's what animates privacy law. And so the response 
was, well, let's give people back their control, give people rights to, I can delete my data. I can correct my data. I can access it, know it, learn it, delete it, correct it, object to processing, and so on. I think it's a laudable move, and I don't think that privacy rights are bad. But the problem is they are really just a, a supporting player because I don't think the individual really can control it. It doesn't scale. There's just too many companies out there. I can't go and ask for deletion for every single company. Plus, they're gathering data about me every day. So I asked for deletion today, and they're going to have data about me tomorrow. So am I supposed to keep doing this? There are thousands of companies with records about me. Am I supposed to write to each of them, find out all this information, and then go and make corrections? I'm maybe a full-time proofreader for companies having my records. Even if they tell me that the data that they have about me, that doesn't tell me much. I need to know how they're going to use it, how they're going to sell it, how they're going to transfer it. If I truly want to understand how good is a company at protecting security and privacy, I need to know, okay, who's their privacy officer? Who's their security officer? What do their teams look like? What's the budget? Do they have training? What do their policies look like? They probably have contracts with hundreds and sometimes thousands of other companies that they have processing data for them. So they, I want to see what are they, what do your agreements look like? I want to see your vendor agreements and look at that. Oh, and if they're going to run algorithms and make decisions about me on this data, just knowing the data about me being used in the algorithms and even knowing the logic of the algorithms isn't enough because the algorithms are making decisions based on other people's data. So I said, give me the entire data set that your algorithm is trained on. And then if it's a machine learning algorithm, it's continuing to train on new data. So I need the, the data, constant feed of all the data. I don't know how you're going to protect everyone else's privacy. It's full, that's a full-time job. Oh, I, oh I, I'll need their, I want to see their best computer scientists because I need mm -hmm. to talk to them about how this thing, I, how am I going to understand it? So I need them to try to explain how it works to me. And then how is it going to be used in the future? And like, where is this machine learning algorithm going to be two months from now or 10 months from now? I just don't think it's something the individual can control. I think there's a conflation of a problem, which is it's certainly the case that the individual is no longer in control of their data, but it doesn't mean you can put the individual back in control of their data. What I think the real problem is, is that data is out of control, that no one is in control. There's no accountability. No one's looking out for the individual safety. Uh, and the law needs to make sure that it is under control, much more than just giving the individual control. I can go into a restaurant and feel pretty safe. And I can buy food in the supermarket and know someone's looked out for it. And I can fly on an airplane. And I can feel that someone's looking out for safety and is regulating this thing. Where we are now, it's okay, you go on an airplane and it may or may not be safe. And I'm supposed to do, I have to do extensive internet research each time and figure out, is the airline safe or even go and fly it myself? That's how we handle privacy. It's like, here you go. Good luck. Figure it out. We've given you some rights that we know you're not going to use. and that's it. But that's not meaningful protection. That's really theater. That's just give people rights and then they don't use them. And then they'll turn around and they'll say, see, look, you didn't use your rights and therefore you don't care about privacy. See, your behavior shows you don't really care. The problem is people can't. 
and it's almost a meaningless exercise. From a utilitarian perspective, we don't seem to have a clear understanding of how much privacy is optimal, right? Even going back to Brandeis, Warren and Brandeis are sort of the founders of this whole school of privacy jurisprudence. They're advocates of privacy, but you know, Brandeis also said that sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? And so he is also one of the leading advocates for transparency. And it seems that from a social welfare perspective, these two things are intention. And jurisprudentially, we're not really sure how to reconcile these things. And you, in your book on understanding privacy, you walk through all the different attempts to come up with a coherent legal theory of privacy. And you ultimately conclude that they're all kind of in tension with one another. And you say, maybe we should just give up on having a coherent theory of privacy. Do we have a systematic way of figuring out from a social welfare perspective, to what extent people's desire for privacy impairs the public good? I mean, I'm thinking in terms of, of healthcare, we look at the response to COVID. I mean, we could have responded a lot better if we had real good access to healthcare data, for instance. It depends on um, who has access and what controls are on it. Because uh, I think it's complicated because a lot of times it's how the question gets posed. After 9-11, the polls would ask, do you want the government to listen in on phone calls of terrorists? And like they got the, <laughs> a lot of people said, yeah. <laughs> But that's not the question. The question is, do you want there to be oversight and a warrant and probable cause to do this? Or do you just want the government to be able to do it if they desire to do it? And so I think that it's the question is not, do you want this or that? That's a false trade-off. It's, you know, okay, we might want there to be access to this data, but who should have access? And can that access be limited? Uh, how long should the data be kept for? How do we balance the different considerations? All that could be done in a thoughtful way. But I often find debates often pit things against each other in a very simplistic way that makes it all or nothing. And the problem is it's not never really all or nothing unless you're an absolutist, but I'm not. I think that privacy is not the end all and be all. Privacy is a means to an end, and we should balance privacy with other things to, in the ends that it serves. And sometimes there are balances. We don't want absolute privacy. There are other interests, including transparency. The question is transparency for whom? If it's transparency for a company, then absolutely, I think, make it transparent. Or you know, a case that I, I, I think was very wrongly decided is the Loomis case, where the Wisconsin Supreme Court said that a sentencing algorithm could not be disclosed because of trade secrets. And this was being used to sentence people, and they couldn't really see how the algorithm worked. You need transparency there. I think it should be fully transparent and ensure that there's not, that these algorithms aren't biased and skewed in troubling ways. On the other hand, that's transparency for the government or for companies that are making decisions about people. That doesn't mean that I'm in favor of transparency for everybody's life. The average individual, that's different. I think they should be protected. When Brandeis was talking about shine the light, he meant shine the light on government and big business, not on the lives of individuals. But we often have, and this is something I wrote about years and years ago, about 20 years ago, is that public records laws and sunshine laws, which were really built and designed to shed light on the government, are increasingly turned on their heads because the government's putting out all this information about people into public records, which then is being hoovered up by some big companies, 
big data companies that are then using this data to analyze people. So instead of these laws actually shedding light on the government, now they're actually facilitating the government looking at people because a lot of this data is then analyzed, combined with other data, and then sold back to the government in enhanced ways to help law enforcement, you know, ferret out information about individuals. So it's, it's ironic, like what direction is this flashlight pointing in really matters. And with respect to protection of privacy, there's this curious criteria that is used all the time, which is the extent to which one has a reasonable expectation of privacy. And if one does not, then one can't argue for privacy, right? And oftentimes this is, you know, in criminal cases and so forth, but it's kind of circular, right? <laughs> I mean, once something becomes commonplace, then the expectation goes away. And it's really the law that would in part influence the extent to which one has a reasonable expectation. Is there a way that we can take that and ground it in something that's non-circular? And is the path that we're currently on with technology just pushing us towards an ever expanding scope of what we can expect to be in the public? Yeah, I think the test was well-meaning, the reasonable expectation of privacy test, which came out of Fourth Amendment law. Well-meaning, but ultimately the wrong test. And I like the fact that the court looked at privacy. So a little bit of history about this. So the court originally had a very antiquated test for when you get Fourth Amendment protection. And the Fourth Amendment protection is really the protection that we have to have judicial oversight and control over what the police and law enforcement can do. And the original test was, was there a physical trespass? Because they said, well, what were things like for the framers? And they didn't have electronic devices back then. And so they thought that's the privacy you get. They didn't even use the term privacy in the Fourth Amendment. So the court said physical trespass. And then there was this wiretapping case, Olmstead, in 1928, where the Supreme Court said, well, wiretapping doesn't involve a physical trespass into the home. So no Fourth Amendment protection. And this was outrageous, really. People were like, oh my gosh, really? The Fourth Amendment doesn't protect against wiretapping? You can just listen in to people's calls without any protection? Took the court 40 years about to reverse it in cats. And they use a test that was created actually in a concurrence by Justice Harlan. Justice John Marshall Harlan said that we should protect when people have a reasonable understanding of privacy. And at first blush, it seems like a good test. Finally, the court's focused on privacy, not this physical trespass. So that's good. I like the fact that we're thinking about privacy, but the problem is the Fourth Amendment transcends privacy. It's not just about privacy. And the court in its interpretation of privacy is really, really narrow. And so all the cases, a lot of the cases, the court said, well, there's no expectation of privacy because it's not totally secret. And they ignored a lot of these problems. So I wrote this article saying that the test is wrong for really two reasons. One is that the focus on privacy has led to actually too narrow a situation where there are really problematic police practices, problematic situations where we want oversight and we want the Fourth Amendment protection. But because of some narrow conception of privacy, gotcha, no protection, haha, and we're out of it. The other was expectations is wrong. We pass law not for what people expect, but in fact, when they don't expect it, but want it. Mm -hmm. So we pass laws to protect privacy, not when we already have it, but when it's under threat or when we feel it's being lost, we protect laws to restore it, to preserve it. So in fact, 
it's almost inversely related to expectation. That's when the law should do an intervention. If everything's good, we don't need a legal intervention. So I wrote this piece and ironically, like literally as I was finishing up the piece, my dean at the time walks into my office and says, hey, congratulations, giving you a new professorship title and you're going to be the John Marshall Harlan research professor of law (laughs) because I don't have this title anymore, but because, uh, you know, I thought he came up with the reasonable expectation of privacy test. Ultimately, I think the answer is the Fourth Amendment speaks of unreasonable searches and seizures. It doesn't say Mm -hmm. privacy, actually. And privacy is a component a one thing, but there could be a lot of reasons why a search is unreasonable. It's a very broad term. Search could be unreasonable because it could be too prone to abuse of government power. It could be unreasonable because it invades people's privacy. It could be unreasonable because it invades a lot of interests of people or causes any types of problems. I just said, anytime we think that oversight and limitation of law enforcement would be better, that's when the Fourth Amendment should say it should protect, because it would be unreasonable not to protect under those situations. Actually, go back to the words of what the Fourth Amendment says. It's not just tethered to privacy or to expectation. And that would have been a better approach. Unfortunately, the court hasn't really gone there, but that was what I was advocating. And I think that's the way out of this circular problem. It's also a way out of this conception of privacy problem. Because when the court applied the reasonable expectation of privacy tests, trying to decide you know, what expectations of privacy society recognizes as reasonable, I've never seen a case where the Supreme Court looked to any sources of what society thinks. The court just somehow magically knows what society wants, and they would just say it. But these are justices that are not necessarily the most steeped in technology. It's not clear that they have some magic ability and great understanding of society. And also, it's not even clear society is the right thing we want to look at because rights are to protect the minority against the majorities. So should the majority's views matter? And we're in a very diverse and large company with a lot of different attitudes about privacy and they might differ people think in Montana might not be the same as what people think in New York City. What should it be? And that's why I think the test is doomed. It's just not the right thing to look at. And the court in looking at it just didn't really do it very thoughtfully. They just made their gut decisions, but they really weren't supported by anything. Well, Dan, I mean, look, your work is sitting at the intersection of technology, law, and business. So that's why I like it. And so... (laughs) In your latest book, you take your insights into privacy and bring them into cybersecurity. Also, you got a whole bunch of other books. This one, of course, Understanding Privacy, check it out. And if you're like me and you like to just sit down and read a textbook from cover to cover, check this one out, Information Privacy Law. I did that with the first edition almost 20 years ago. Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.